Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Andrea Mosterman, author of Spaces of Enslavement, A History of Slavery and Resistance in Dutch New York. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Absolutely. Uh, So I am uh, from the Netherlands, born and raised. And when growing up, I um, always had a fascination with American history, especially the United States uh, and the history of slavery. I grew up watching Roots amongst others. Uh, But I never really heard anything about the history of Dutch slavery. And this is why when growing older and kind of discovering this history myself, I, uh, I kind of made it my, my purpose to really research that history and make sure that we get the information we need to share that with a wider public so that other people at least learn about the history of Dutch slavery. Um, so, you know, it, it's really... Um, coming out of my my own background and my upbringing that I, I started to look at this particular history. And then, of course, in the United States, the the history of Dutch slavery was something that was not really discussed at all. Um, it was oftentimes talked about the colonization of New York and how New York used to be Dutch, the colony of New Netherlands, uh, people talking with pride about somebody like Peter Stuyvesant. Um, but the fact that enslaved people were in part responsible for helping build and develop that colony was always left out. So those are some of the the reasons how I came to this project and what my background really, how, how that informed it. Tell the audience what's so important about spatial control and the enslavement of Black people. So thinking about uh, slavery... Spatial control is really a crucial element of that. Enslavement is in large part the containment of people, holding people in bondage, uh, not allowing them to um, move and uh, do things that that you don't want them to do. Like captivity is is a crucial element of enslavement. And so when we look at the history of slavery and systems of slavery, we see that controlling enslaved people and controlling their spatial, uh, their their movements through space and their activities in spaces is really uh, instrumental in being able to enslave a population. So when looking at then the um, really a more spatial history of slavery, it helps kind of see some of the the ways that enslavers were, uh, the, the things they were implementing to keep enslaved people in 
in place or to control them. So system of surveillance, legislation that would um, limit their activities, restrict their activities or movements, um, segregating people and safe people or separating them from certain spaces, all of that really became a, a crucial element of being able to control a certain population. And in this case, uh, enslaved Black New Yorkers. Now, describe the Dutch American communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Dutch started to uh, colonize New York, what today is New York and New Jersey, uh, parts of Pennsylvania, uh, Connecticut even. So it's a larger region that the Dutch at one point claimed for themselves. Even Delaware was at some point part of this area. And the Dutch claimed this uh, as a Dutch colony. This started really with the exploration along the Hudson River with Henry Hudson in 1609, but it wasn't until the 1620s that the Dutch West India Company actually took control over the region and actively started to settle the area. And um, with that, during that Dutch colonial period, then we see that Dutch people are settling in the area. Uh, By 1664, the Dutch lose the colony to the English. They briefly take it back at some point, but then the English take it back again. So by the 1670s, it's um, an English colony. And uh, what happens is that a lot of the people, the Dutch descendants, the Dutch colonists and their descendants are still living in the area and really are holding on to Dutch culture for a very long time. So we see that Dutch Americans are still uh, speaking the Dutch language in some areas into the early 19th century. We see that people are still making Dutch American foods, celebrating Dutch holidays, uh, sometimes building their um, their barns and such with Dutch-style architecture. So the Dutch... The Dutch American um, communities that I talk about really are in many ways culturally uh, Dutch or a form of, of Dutch, like really Dutch American, because they're adapting also to to their local circumstances um, up until the, the early 19th century, very clearly. So they're also still attending the Dutch Reformed Church. Uh, Dutch Reformed Churches are very prominent in these communities. And so those are the areas that I looked at predominantly for my book. And when you look at New York, you can find them in various parts of the uh, what is now the state of New York. But I looked predominantly at what today is Brooklyn, New York, Kings County, um, Ulster County, New York, and Albany County, New York. So those areas had really pockets that were very significantly culturally Dutch for a very long time. Now, you talked about social space. Tell us, what what is social space? Um, so I think that in if, what you're referring to is really in the case of the, the Dutch Reformed Church in particular, that I look at the ways in which the church is not just a religious space, but also a social space, uh, a place of power. And um, what is important about this and thinking about the church in that way is that when you look at the Dutch Reformed Churches and how the Dutch Reformed Church or the Dutch Reformed Churches, like the local congregations, respond to uh, slavery and enslavement and uh, accepting enslaved people in the church, what we see happening is that 
it's oftentimes analyzed in terms of theology and religion and church history. Uh, but what is also important is to look at it in a more social context, because being part of a Dutch Reformed Church, being a member in the Dutch Reformed Church, also as a way to advance within society. And in fact, we see that the most prominent people within that community would become elders in the church. Um, they uh, they were the ones who were determining who would be accepted within the church. And so it not it's not just uh, important on a religious level, but also very much a, a prominent social space. And this, of course, you know, I'm looking at it in the context of the, the church, really emphasizing that. Um, but you could apply that to other areas of looking at uh, exchanges in the various spaces as well. In chapter one, there's a term that you use, half freedom. What does this mean? So this is um, a term that appears in the records a few times. Um, it refers to a group of men and their wives who obtain freedom at some point. The most prominent group, the group that's most well known, uh, is a group of 11 men who are obtaining a conditional freedom in 1644. Uh, the term is actually more prominently used for a group who gets their freedom much later on in uh, 16, like January of 1664. And in all of those cases, their freedom is conditional, meaning that they, they are free, but only under certain conditions. So for the 11 men who uh, are getting this type of conditional freedom in 1644 and their wives as well, they the conditions for their freedom are that they still need to pay yearly tributes to the Dutch West India Company. And the Dutch West India Company was uh, the, the institute, the company that enslaved them. They were, they were company slaves, as they were referred to. Uh, they would still have to pay yearly tribute to the Dutch West India Company. They also would have to um, assist the company whenever it would need them. And their children, even those who had not yet been born, would remain in bondage. And that was the, the conditions for these 11 men. But there are other, in other cases, there are other conditions. So in the case of uh, three women, for example, who are obtaining a conditional freedom in December of 1662, they are... An, um, these women, it's Mike and uh, Susanna, um, are, are two of the, th the three women. They are required to still return to the house of Peter Stuyvesant monthly to clean his house. And that's the condition of their freedom. And so over time, this has been increasingly referred to as half freedom because it does appear in the records once or twice. It's also referred to as half slavery at some point. Uh, interestingly, the term half freedom is used in the Netherlands to refer to serfs. So there, there seems to be some sort of a connection with, with older systems that existed in the Netherlands and in more broadly in Western Europe that have a similar term of people who still have certain uh, uh, responsibilities, requirements, are connected still, are, are still held in a form of bondage, but it's not considered full slavery. 
Now, I'm always looking at terms. Defensible spaces, um, how does that connect with the Dutch American communities? So defensible space is introduced by Oscar Newman, and it really looks more at... um, uh, you know, 20th century architecture. And what he does is that he analyzes how architecture could be used to defend a space. So how can you organize your um, your community or how can you build homes or apartment buildings in a way that it avoids crime and, uh, and such? And what was interesting, I mean, this is a, a sociologist and... Um, In some ways, you would not expect this to have anything to do with looking at slavery in early New York. But what it showed, I think, and how it became important for me to look at space and um, in the context of New York is that we see similar ways of building homes in early New York in a way that allowed for control, surveillance, Uh, of certain members of the community and those members in particular being enslaved people. What's interesting is that Oscar Newman actually shows an example of a Dutch home as uh, the ultimate way of defending this, having this defensible space of how architecture could be used as such. So, and, and that's a similar type of home that we also see in early America during the early Dutch colonial period. So it it really helped me to kind of think through the role that the built environment and architecture can play in controlling and surveilling, monitoring and saved men, women and children in these communities. Now, another way in which they control was through passing laws. Tell us about the 1713 New York City law. Yeah, well, let me... Uh, let me go back a little bit and to kind of contextualize that. What we see in the Dutch colonial period, so that era where they were enslaved men and women who were able to obtain some form of, of conditional freedom, what we see during that period is that enslaved people, a, a group of them, especially those who were enslaved by the Dutch West India Company, who actually had a home within New Amsterdam, which was a very small area, the most lot. Um, lower part of Manhattan today, uh, south of Wall Street. And um, those men and women, they um, they actually within that community were able to uh, attend the Dutch Reformed Church. They went to the courts. We see them appear in the court records defending uh, property or sometimes um, arguing over unpaid salary. Uh, They also were going to taverns. They were purchasing and selling goods in the streets of New Amsterdam. And one of the arguments that I make is that one of the reasons why they're able to do that is because there are no restrictions over their movements uh, within legislation. There is no slave codes. There's no slave legislation. So these men and women are able to use that absence of it, the absence of restrictions on what they can do to really be able to kind of um, expand some some freedoms or autonomy within their bond conditions. And in some cases, then they're even able to, to use that to obtain this half freedom type of uh, condition. 
Now, over time, this changes significantly, especially it's, it really starts toward the latter part of the 17th century and into the 18th century. We see that there is more and more legislation that limits the movements and activities of enslaved people. So enslaved people are no longer able to purchase alcohol. They're no longer able to sell and uh, buy goods without permission from their enslavers. They are no longer allowed to uh, meet with larger number of people. So in some cases, three or four people is the the limit of how many enslaved New Yorkers can meet in public spaces. And all of that legislation significantly Uh, limits the movements and activities of enslaved people. And really the reason for doing that is to, um, you know, as as part of sustaining that system of slavery, but also to avoid any opportunities of resistance um, or what would be considered illicit behaviors. And when we look then at the 1713 legislation, what we can note there, so that's in New York City, and this is right after the slave uh, rebellion of New York City, which happened in 1712, during which enslaved people in New York actually uh, uh, put fire on several homes. Several white New Yorkers were killed during this rebellion. And so it's in the aftermath of that, that the New York City Council passes more strict laws to make sure that and save people, uh, that their movements and activities are regulated. And especially at nighttime, um, and save people are actually required to wear a lantern if they uh, travel the streets at night. Um, so, and so it's a direct response to that particular slave rebellion. And we see similar instances in the records. Like in 1708, there's a case of uh, an enslaved man and woman actually uh, killing a, a whole family in Queens County. It was a Hallett family. And so the, the father, the wife who was pregnant and their children and in response to that, we actually see that legislation refers to that particular instance as a reason why they need stricter legislation, or if the legislation already exists, why it's important that that's actually abided by and made sure that it is abided by. Thank you. Now, when people were free, what were some of the restrictions of the free individuals? Well, one really important thing to think about is that if you have a society in which a certain part of the population is enslaved and that is organized by skin color, then that also means that anybody with that particular skin color, so in the case of New York, uh, black New Yorkers were um, by default in some ways considered enslaved unless they could prove that they were free. And because of that, we also see that for Black New Yorkers to navigate the streets of New York, they would always have to prove that they are there legitimately. So they actually would have to show a pass, for example, if they're traveling from place A to B, a pass that shows that they have permission from their enslaver or uh, some sort of documentation that shows that they are a free person of color. And uh, so, and this, we see this on multiple levels. Uh, in some cases, activities for Black New Yorkers are then uh, only legitimate if they can prove that they have permission in some way, 
uh, or if they're accompanied by a white person. And this was actually the case with the 1730 oyster raking ordinance that uh, explicitly says that because black people had been raking too many oysters, they would no longer be allowed to do so unless they were accompanied by a white person. So merely having a, a white person present made that a legitimate activity. And we can see that this extends beyond uh, more like this broad legislation that also on a more personal level, uh, enslavers try to still control the movements of the people that they formerly enslaved. And one particular case of this that really stood out to me was the, the DeWitt family, Hilitje DeWitt in uh, Rochester in Ulster County. She was an enslaver there. And at some point, uh, a man and woman that belonged to the DeWitt family were uh, emancipated, were freed not Nat and uh, Nan and Joe, sorry, <laughs> Nan and Joe. And she, in her um, correspondence to family members, Nan and Joe at the time were in New York City, Yelitja was in Rochester. And in correspondence to family in New York City, she actually explicitly tells them, make sure they don't come to Rochester. We do not want them here because they might actually give the people that we are still holding in bondage the idea that there is this opportunity to become free. Um, and and this was a very explicit case, but this happens throughout where there were different things uh, put in place to um, to avoid that from happening, to still control the movements and activities of, of Black people, even if they were not enslaved. Now, you talked about a barn fire. Tell us the importance of this in terms of surveillance. So this was in Albany, in 1793, there were, um, according to the records, three enslaved people, two uh, girls and a man. The man's name was Pompey. The girls were Bet and Diem. And they were believed to have uh, put on fire the stable or barn of the Gansevoort family. And they... Um, Bet, actually, one of the records we have about this is the, the confession of Bet. And what is interesting about this, so this this was a really devastating fire in Albany, New York. It uh, burned down most of one particular block in really the most central part of the, the town at that point. And um, what what is interesting about it is that in the confession of Bet, she actually explains how they were able to do this. And this really helped me think through the ways in which enslaved New Yorkers still navigated those spaces, even if they were not allowed to, uh, even if the legislation said that they should not be in the streets at night or that they um, should not meet with you know, a certain number of people, all of those things. And and these cities, like a, a city like Albany, had watchmen, uh, bellmen who were patrolling the streets to ensure that nothing illegitimate happened. But what she explains in her confession is that she actually, um, how they, they navigated that city, even with all, with all those restrictions and limitations in place. So they met at the house of one of the enslavers, Dow, uh, was his name. And from there, and, and they met at the kitchen of that home because they knew that that was a place where they could meet, where nobody would notice them. They then waited for the watchman to pass so they knew exactly when they were surveilling the streets and when they would be able to walk the streets. 
And after that, they traveled to the Hansaford home with hot coals, carrying hot coals with them without being noticed. Nobody noticed them while they were doing this. And one of the reasons is that they were using alleyways and and uh, backyards. Like they they were navigating the city in a way that white. Uh, people in Albany would not. And this is something that you see throughout the records. If you look closely, you can see references to this of enslaved people uh, selling goods in outhouses, uh, moving through cities from backyard to backyard or alleyways. Um, and and so the bet the story of the fire really was one of these moments, the, one of these aha moments for me, because she's so explicit clearly explains how they were able to navigate that city, even with all the legislation that was in place, and not be caught. Now, another aspect of movement would be parades and celebrations. I I thought this was really interesting, your description of the Pinkster Parade. Tell us about that. So Pinkster was a really big deal in New York. It's based on the Dutch Pinkster celebration, which really is uh, Pentecost or Whitsuntide. That's what the celebration is. So it's originally a religious celebration, but in the Netherlands, it also is very much a folk celebration that accompanied that. And we see that continuing in early New York. Now, what's interesting about Pinkster is that over time, it became a predominantly African-American festival, especially uh, by the latter part of the 18th and early 19th century. There's enough references uh, that discuss Pinkster as such, and it would have in part an African king, oftentimes referred to as King Charlie or Charles, who, uh, and this is especially in Albany, he's the, the king, but in other parts, we, we see that there's a king in charge of the parade as well and of the festivities. So there would be this African king who would be in charge of the festivities. In the case of Albany, where we have the most vivid descriptions of Pinkster, he would uh, parade down the streets, people would um, pay him tributes, and then enslaved people and, and free people, people would gather on what was called in Albany the Pinkster Hill, where now uh, the state capital is located, and they would celebrate for days. And what they were able to do during those days were all the things that they were not able to do at any other time of year. They were allowed to drink alcohol. They were allowed to gather in, in large groups, really, um, make music, dance, play games. And so it became a very important festival for enslaved New Yorkers because oftentimes this was one of the very few opportunities they had to actually meet with family members, see their loved ones. Um, And this is very clear from Sojourner Truth's description. She actually talks about this in her narrative. And she, of course, was in Ulster County, so not in the Albany area. Uh, But she talks about the moment when she had fleed her enslaver and he comes to uh, retrieve them and she almost returns into bondage. Like she considers this at this very moment because it's the time of Pinkster. And that would mean that she would be able to go and celebrate with her loved ones. Um, She doesn't. She doesn't return. But it just shows how important this celebration was for enslaved men, women, and children in, in New York. Now, tell us about the places inside of the homes 
where the Dutch Americans held the enslaved African Americans. Mm-hmm. This is a, an important part of the the history of New York because it, oftentimes when slavery in New York is discussed, it's portrayed as a system that is more humane. Um, less violent and brutal brutal than slavery in other parts of um, the Americas or even the United States. And one of the things that oftentimes is said is that, you know, the enslaved people are living in the same homes as their enslavers. And that's kind of portrayed as one uh, of the reasons why slavery wasn't um, so so horrific in New York. In fact, James Fenimore Cooper even refers to it as they are part of one family, in in part because they they live in the same homes. Um, but when you actually go to the spaces where they were living in these homes, it was nothing like where their enslavers lived. Right? Um, one of those spaces would be, for example. Um, garret spaces. So in New York, most unsafe people would actually be living in garret spaces, attic spaces, or in cellars. There's a few cases where they lived in outbuildings um, or actual like, you know, structures that were similar to the cabins that we see in the South, but that was relatively rare. In most cases, they lived within the same house as their enslavers did, but in these attic spaces, garret spaces, or cellars. And when you visit those spaces, you can see that this it's inherently different from where the enslaving family lived and spent their time. It's oftentimes very um, dark spaces, very little natural light coming in. Um, oftentimes, these are spaces where you cannot stand. Uh, they would be small, and several people would be sharing that space, not people of your choice, but other people enslaved by that family. So there would be very little privacy um, safety or security in many of these spaces. And this is where I think it was so important to actually look at those spaces of enslavement within the homes, because it really shows the the ways in which those spaces, the ways in which enslaved people would have experienced those homes very differently from the people who enslaved them, if only because of the physical space. I mean, then we're not even talking about the emotional experiences that they had in those spaces and how they, how, you know, what those spaces meant to them. But if we just look at the physical aspects, we can already see that they were very different. So if you take, for example, Schuyler Mansion is one of the places that I talk about. In safe people were, um, working in a walled courtyard in the back of the home. That's where most of their labor would have taken place. And in the cellar of the home, which had only one entrance and exit into that walled courtyard. And very likely many, if not most of them, would have been living in that same cellar. When you go to Schuyler Mansion today and you enter the home from the front, it's this beautiful house. Um, high ceilings, tall like windows, lots of natural light, large rooms, a huge stairwell. Well, in safe people would have been using a tiny stairwell in the back. They would have been living in in that case in a cellar that had very little natural light coming in, if any. Oftentimes the floors were dirt or sometimes like some floorboards on top of it. Um, 
in many of these homes, the kitchen was in the cellar. So it also would have had a lot of uh, the smells and and um, smoke of uh, making those foods. So uh, very different from where the Philip Schuyler family of Albany would have been living in comparison to where their enslaved people lived. Now, you talk about the Lot family and their home. There mm-hmm. were some interesting findings there. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the Lott family um, home, the Lott family, this is a house in uh, Brooklyn, New York, what is today Brooklyn, New York. And uh, this is of the Lott family, a Dutch family that built this home in the 1730s. And um, it was this one room style building, but they added a kitchen uh, attached to it. And that kitchen had a garret space that turned out to have been the living space of some, if not all, of the people they enslaved. And um, that was, I believe, close to 10 people by the latter part of the 18th century. And those garret spaces, there's two garret spaces, they're so small that for a long time, nobody realized that people had actually lived in those spaces until a caretaker of the home discovered in the uh, in a closet in that kitchen that's on the ground level, the first floor, that um, the ceiling could move and could open up. And there's an, a little stairwell that um, led to those garret spaces. And so those are the really an example of the type of spaces where unsafe people live that were you couldn't stand up straight in them. I I when I visited those spaces, I could barely see anything, even with the light of my phone. And uh, so you know to to really visit those spaces and to think through that the fact that unsafe people were living there really kind of put perspective on. The, the physical space. Now, what is interesting is that when archaeologists were researching those spaces and after that was discovered, they actually found some items that were hidden under the floorboard. And among them were um, uh, ritually placed corn cobs and a uh, cloth pouch with a goat pelvis and an oyster shell in it. And these are very similar. So the that the pouch is very similar to um, similar types of pouches uh, that are found in other places in the African diaspora and and in Africa. Um, In West Central Africa, this is a very common practice, but we also see it in the Senegambia region, where oftentimes these are referred to as Grigri, that are worn either on the body or uh, buried or in this case, placed under floorboards to safeguard a space or to protect a person. And so it's it's very likely that this was placed there by the unsafe people who stayed in that space to protect that space, to create some sort of a sense of safety in that space. And similarly, the ritually placed corn cobs, they were placed in the shape of a cross. Um, in one case, that may have been a star. Both of those uh, symbols were very important symbols in uh, many African cultures and in the African diaspora, and were similarly used to safeguard spaces. Now, you talk about Sojourner Truth and her cellars. Any other descriptions you'd like to tell us about with the cellars? 
Um, I mean, it's very, so Sojourner Truth kind of was, her description gives a little bit more of detail about what those sellers at the time actually would have looked like. I, um, I've walked through many of these sellers in historic homes and today's in those homes, they're oftentimes used for, um, storage and such. So it's, it's, it's harder to kind of get a sense of what this would have looked like at the time. But Sojourner Truth gives a really vivid description of the cellar in which she grew up at the Hardenburg home, where she grew up with her family uh, or her father, mother, and brother. And one of the things she mentions is loose floorboards and that they're oftentimes with like water, mud, um, very little light. There was a very strong smell. And um, so it helped kind of understanding what those sellers would have looked like and smelled like and sounded like at the time that enslaved people were living there in the 18th and early 19th century. Now let's move back to the church. You Mm -hmm. talked about in your book uh, about the congregants. How did they feel about black people? What is interesting in the Dutch Reformed Church is that, as I mentioned, in the early 17th century, we see enslaved people participating in the Dutch Reformed Church in New Amsterdam. Uh, people like Simon Congo and Manuel de Gerdereus, and they were amongst those 11 men who were able to obtain their freedom in 1644. They married in the church. They had their children baptized in that church. Um So they were actively participating. They also, in their freedom petitions, referred to that, the fact that they were Christians and participating in the church, as um, one of the arguments to obtain their freedom. Now, by the latter part of the 17th century, we see that slowly but surely as slavery expands in New York, uh, there are fewer and fewer enslaved people allowed in these churches. And I I say allowed, and that's maybe not, um, I mean, I, I think that that is true, but there's no record that that necessarily says the church doesn't allow and save people in the church. In fact, if we look at the Dutch Reformed Church and kind of the uh, the governing bodies, they did not uh, prohibit enslaved or free black people from participating or even become members, becoming members in the church in many cases. Um, but what we see happening on the ground is that in a lot of these cases, it's the local congregations that decide whether or not they will accept black people in their churches. And uh, by the 18th century, there are very few congregations where we actually, uh, where the records show that black people were part of the church, were accepted in the church. And it's always been um, unclear exactly why that happened, because there is no top-down decision that says that they should not be allowed in church. And what what really helped me think through this is the fact that, you know, a lot of this is in the hands of local congregations. And at some point, I found a really vivid description of how a local congregation responded to the request for full membership of a a group of black men. And this was in Brooklyn, New York. The six congregations of Kings County had uh, two ministers, and uh, one of them was Reverend Schollmacher, and the other one was Peter Lowe. This was in 1788 that Peter Lowe had a group of black men requesting to become members in his church. 
and he wanted to admit them. He actually um, writes in this letter that I found, he literally writes, I thought they were worthy. But his congregants won't allow them, won't accept them as full members in the church. And Lowe lists the 10 primary reasons of why they don't want these people in the church. And I should note that he disagrees with all of them. He has a rebuttal for all of them. Um, And the objections are very wide ranging and really gave an insight into how these congregants um, perceived black people. Um, and why they did not want black people in their churches. So one of the the very first one was that they have no souls. Uh, they also claimed that um, they they didn't want to sit next to them because they smelled bad and they would be ashamed to commune with them. They talked about them being descendants of Ham. Um, they uh, said that it would make them look too much like the Methodist church if they would accept black people. They also claimed that they were worried that if black people would be admitted into the church, they might, uh, the next step might be that they would want to become church elders, deacons, ministers, and that would be a disgrace on the Dutch Reformed Church. So those were some of the reasons and that document that they gave. And so that document really helped me kind of see how this particular congregation was um, why they were objecting to black members in the church. And I have no doubt that it was similar um, reasons that kept black people out of the churches and other Dutch Reformed churches. And I should note that at that time in 1788, we know from the 1790 census, so just two years after that, that um, in some of those townships, close to 30% of the population was enslaved. And so in Kings County. And when we look at it on a household level, Close to 75% of households in several of the townships of Kings County enslaved people within their home. And so I think that that really helps to kind of contextualize this. Like most of those congregants would have actually enslaved people within their homes. And they clearly felt that this system of slavery could be challenged if they would admit these people in the church. It also shows, you know, their objections to sharing that space, that religious space. Um, uh, They objected to sharing that with, with Black people. Now, one example in your book of this interconnection among Black families and white families was the example of Jacob Fowder. Tell us about what was going on with him. So I, I've, I, there's only one reference of him that I found in the records, which I think in some ways tells us a lot. Um, and there might be more, but I, I haven't, I haven't seen it. But in that particular case, he is, um, he mentions that he can't sell uh, an unsaved child because the child is his son. And if I remember correctly, this is in the latter part of the 17th century. Now, it it tells us very little, little other than this particular. Um, Dutch descendant or or white settler um, had a child with an enslaved woman. And uh, the woman is not mentioned at all in the record. And this is something that 
we see very there's very little we know that it happened there in the 17th century there are some actual marriages between black and white people um by the 18th century that's very rare um but we know that there were uh, many instances in which free white men would um take advantage of the women they had slaved and um, sexually um, assault them, um, rape them. The thing is that we have very little of this in the records because, of course, this is not something that you would discuss openly. And um, if there is a record of it, then it it may have not been preserved in many cases because it was not seen as something that um, you would want to preserve. So in the case of New York, we have very few cases where we actually see this. And this was one of those cases where we do have this reference. Um, There's another case in the Schuyler family. Uh, There's actually one of the members of the Schuyler family family had a child with one of the women the family enslaved and uh the the child was called chalk chalk uh schuyler according to the records he lived in the woods and married a white woman from albany and but again there's very little discussed about that particular case and the woman the the mother again is completely left out of the record so um it's very difficult to really get to the specifics of those stories, but every now and then you see these these references that show that this did help happen in New York in the same way we know it happened in other enslaving societies. Now, what message would you like to leave your reader with after they read this book? One of the things that for me was really important is that people understand that slavery in New York required a system of of slavery that really resembles slavery systems elsewhere. The fact that there's patrols, past systems, um, a limitation, regulation uh, of the movements and activities of enslaved people, the fact that enslaved people um, lived in the same homes, that that does not mean that somehow this, this uh, that slavery in New York was more humane or benign. That is something that I'd really like people to, to get. Um, I also think it's important that people understand that, that slavery in New York is not um, an atypical history of, of slavery in the United States. It's actually, um, when we look at the longer history of slavery in what today is the United States. New York had a system of slavery in place. Slavery existed there by Europeans of enslaved Africans and indigenous people for 200 years. So 200 years. Whereas in a place like Georgia, it actually was um, a little over 100 years that we see a similar system of enslavement. Yet when we think of slavery in the United States, we tend to think of places like Georgia. We tend to think of the South. And um, that is something that I hope people are are getting from the book, that they see that slavery, to, to be able to enslave people, you need a system that oppresses people, that limits their movements, that is a system of violence, 
Um, and that was the case everywhere, whether it's New York or Georgia or Louisiana. It's uh, plus it's New York was not um, the way it's remembered this, you know, abolitionist place. Um, it, it was a slave colony and state much longer than it was a, a place of active abolitionist thought. So, um, so those are some of the, the things that I think are important to keep in mind. And just to, to go back to that last point, slavery was abolished in New York in 1827. That's when they fully uh, abolished slavery. It started with gradual manumission in 1799. 1827 is just one generation removed from the end of the Civil War. That's not that much. Yet somehow that very short period, and I think that people like James Fenimore Cooper are in part, part responsible for that in the way that they created the story of New York being uh, a free state. And sure, at some point there was slavery in New York, but when when there was slavery here, it really wasn't that bad um, as it was in the South, for example. And um, and so somehow we tend to think of that very short time period as kind of being representative of slavery in uh, like slave resistance becomes more the resistance against slavery becomes more associated with New York than the 200 years of history of slavery in New York. So that's a very, <laughs> a very long answer to your question. But all of those things, I think, are closely intertwined and very important to uh, consider and things that I hope I've been able to uh, shed some light on. Yes, thank you. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us what what's your next project? Uh, yeah, I'm. So I'm very excited to, to start working on this ne- next project. Um, it is focusing on the slave ship, the Chirion, which is a ship that brought 290 enslaved people into the harbor of. Uh, New Amsterdam, just before the English would take it, take over uh, the town and rename it New York, New York City. Um, it is a story of the Dutch Atlantic slave trade about um, New York and slavery in New York at this very particular moment, uh, but also all the different people. I really want it to be a, a story about the different people involved in slavery and the slave trade. Uh, both the enslaved people, the people who were uh, the victims of the, this transatlantic system of slavery, but also the people who were actually, um, you know, responsible for it, the, the captain of the ship, the crew on the ship. Like, who were these people? What are their stories? And how is it that they were um, participating in, in really this horrific um uh, practice of human human trafficking. So that's the story that I want to tell next, and I can't wait to to really develop it and um, and start researching writing. Well, we'll be looking forward to that story. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you.